Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to director Alex Gibney and producer Aaron Etikin about their film, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. The film investigates the company Theranos that promised to revolutionize healthcare. The company's founder, Elizabeth Holmes, had a vision to reinvent the processing of blood tests. Normally, vials of blood are drawn from a vein and sent to a lab under a doctor's supervision. Holmes aspired to accomplish the same thing with the mere prick of a finger. She claimed to have invented a desktop machine called the Edison that would test hundreds of conditions without the need for a doctor's visit or a wait for lab results. Theranos was valued at billions of dollars before the Edison was exposed as a fraudulent device. The inventor investigates how Holmes kept investors, journalists, and the public mesmerized for so long. Holmes didn't grant an interview for the film, but Gibney's team obtained extensive footage of her. Here's a clip of her giving a TED Talk. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, is a basic human right. A right defined in the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Yet in the United States today, healthcare is the leading cause of bankruptcy. Holmes won the confidence of many powerful people. In 2014, she was profiled for the cover of Fortune magazine. Superstar attorney David Boies was her legal muscle. Errol Morris made Theranos promotional films as he had previously done for Apple. Former Secretary of State George Shultz was so enthusiastic about Theranos, he recruited his grandson Tyler Shultz to work for the company. Tyler eventually became disillusioned in the lab when he recognized that the Edison machine wasn't working. He's interviewed in The Inventor. When I think of Theranos, I really feel like there were two entirely different worlds. There was the carpeted world, and there was the tiled world. In the carpeted world was where Elizabeth was a goddess. Everyone, you know, almost worshipped the ground she walked on. She could do no wrong. She was the next Steve Jobs. Theranos was changing the world. And then you go onto the tile side and nothing works. We're on a sinking ship. Everything's a lie. Reconciling the differences between those two worlds was really hard for me to do. I knew Elizabeth personally from all these interactions through my family. Um, so I really trusted her, I believed in her. I would leave the tiled world thinking, oh man, sinking ship, and I would go have one conversation with Elizabeth. Theranos was founded with the goal of creating more actionable experience. If you can begin to understand your body, understand And I would be so motivated to go back and work, and I felt like I was changing the world again. And I would go back into the tile world, and I would go, wait, what just, what just happened? You want it to be true so badly. And even for me, I was working with these devices every single day, and she could still kind of convince me. When I think back on those conversations, I just think, like, how, how did she do that? 
The backlash to Holmes started with a 2015 Wall Street Journal expose by reporter John Carreyrou. He later wrote a book on Theranos called Bad Blood. Gibney interviews Carreyrou and two other journalists who covered Theranos, Fortune Magazine's Roger Parloff and The New Yorker's Ken Auletta. So why did so many people believe in Theranos, despite the lack of data to back it up? Gibney interviews behavioral economist Dan Ariely. So the reality is that data just doesn't sit in our mind as much as stories do. Like it's almost like glue, the glue that, that takes all of the data. And even more important, stories have emotions that data doesn't. And emotions get people to, to do all kinds of things, good, good and bad. The film overlaps several figures and themes that Gibney has covered in previous documentaries, such as The Trials of Henry Kissinger, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and Steve Jobs, The Man and the Machine. Gibney's producers on this film were Jesse Dieter and Aaron Etikin. Aaron has previously worked for Gibney's company Jigsaw Productions on several other projects, including his Frank Sinatra series. Last week, I hosted Alex and Aaron for our screening series, Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Afterwards, we had this talk in front of a live audience. I asked Alex how he got the idea to make a film about Theranos. Originally, it was uh, it was kind of brought to me by Richard Plepler at HBO and, and Graydon Carter, both of whom had originally been very big fans of Elizabeth. And uh, Richard, I think, at one time thought of doing a follow doc, you know, the glories of Elizabeth Holmes, and then had read uh, the Wall Street Journal story and seen the worm turn. And... It was a different kind of story now, so he, he reached out to me. And I, I was interested in it because I thought um, it would be an intriguing tale about the psychology of fraud, not only in terms of deception by Elizabeth Holmes, but how deception, how she may have needed to have deceived herself in order to deceive others, and also how investors, journalists, and executives who were also deceived by her, that process, how it works. So that's what got me going at the beginning. Aaron, you have all this footage inside Theranos, all this interview footage that you didn't conduct uh, with Elizabeth Holmes. Can you talk about where you got that footage from? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, at the beginning, we didn't have any of that access. um, it was a it was a gift from a secret source that we cannot reveal that came to us about halfway through the edit. It changed everything for us. I mean, it was amazing. This was the kind of story that um, was unfolding in real time. So as the news was getting worse for Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, people that we were trying to get access to were becoming more and more comfortable with providing access to us, both in terms of interviews and then this gold mine of footage. Yeah, it, it teaches you a lesson in terms of how if you keep pushing, you keep reaching out to people, you spread the word, you have conversations that may or may not bear fruit, but you keep you know, establishing a kind of reservoir of trust among certain people and pushing forward, and then over time, sometimes good things happen. I mean, at the very beginning of the process, uh, we were completely flummoxed because... Um, Theranos was still a, a going concern, and 
as you see from the film, there are a lot of people who were very scared of coming forward because of the potential they'd be sued by David Boyce. And that fear was prevalent. So nobody wanted to stick their heads up above the parapet uh, to come forward. It was only the journalists at the beginning who were talking. That allowed us to go through, uh, to, to take some interesting avenues that we may not have taken otherwise, talking to Dan Ariely, digging into the Edison part of the story. But over time, we were able to you know, have this breakthrough. The other person who was hugely helpful to us over time was, was John Carreyrou, and he had developed a level of trust with, with, uh, with people because he had been really the guy who dug out the story. So uh, John Carreyrou, the uh, Wall Street Journal reporter, has now published his book, uh, Bad Blood, on this. With the book, with this film, are there any Theranos true believers still out there uh, who push back on this narrative? Yes. He's in the film. It's a guy named Tim Draper. He's got the Bitcoin tie. And uh, he believes that Elizabeth has been wronged. Here's Tim Draper in the film. I mean, we invest in, you know, a, a girl and a dog or two guys and a cat. We, we just say, is this person going to dedicate their life and make something extraordinary happen? And yes, in that case, she was that person. So um, many very smart people were taken by Elizabeth Holmes. One of them is Errol Morris, who was enlisted to do a series of commercials about Theranos. Can you talk about uh, you know your any interactions you had with Errol Morris uh, around the subject? I knew that um, uh, Errol had been a part of the Theranos publicity machine and had shot material not only material for commercials, but also material for backstage stuff. <coughs> and so I thought, that's intriguing. And I did reach out to him early and often to see if he would talk about it. Wouldn't that have been interesting to talk about two different experiences coming at it before and after? But Errol wasn't much interested in engaging. At one point, I did manage to spot him at a public event. And I said, uh, you know, Errol, you know, let's talk about Theranos. He said, um, I'm not going to talk to you, and you can't make me. And I said, well, how about we just talk off the record? And he said, well, for God, there is no off the record, and he can be a very unforgiving person. <laughs> so I, I was never able to make it happen, much as I tried. Uh, well, Aaron, let me ask you uh, this question, because Elizabeth Holmes does stand out as a unique female entrepreneur, and I wonder if it makes you uneasy in any way, the kind of discrediting of her, since she's so unique in that respect? It's a good question, and I think that, you know, a lot of women probably have different feelings about this. For me personally, um, she's an interesting character, and I think gender is something that you can't ignore because it's such a huge part of, I think, her meteoric rise in the beginning, that she was a woman coming in, coming along at the right time in the right place in Silicon Valley that I think was very hungry for a female inventor, a female entrepreneur. Um, so gender definitely played a role, I think, in her success. And I think when she was on the downfall, she tried to say that it was because she was a woman that people were paying attention to her in the story and men are allowed to fail all the time in Silicon Valley and in startups, and why are they allowed to fail and she wasn't, and she thought it was because she was a woman. I think, um, you know, I've thought about this a lot, I've talked to a lot of women about this, and I think that 
at the end of the day, Elizabeth Holmes does not represent women, and if she is the model for women in Silicon Valley, then I, you know, we're all screwed. Um, you know, at the end of the day, she committed a specific fraud and crime that is so abhorrent because it was affecting real people and their healthcare and their lives. And at the end of the day, that has nothing to do with being a woman who failed or a man who failed. It was, um, you know, it was specifically the story is what she did. So I'm, I'm hoping that it, you know, galvanizes the women in science and medicine to come out and show us what you can really do. There's one thing I'd like to follow up on in that regard, and that is, it's interesting why there was so much attention focused on Elizabeth, and one of the reasons was, I mean, she was a great storyteller, and people were interested in her story. Young, female entrepreneur becomes a billionaire. Well, that's the part that actually, in retrospect, I feel disquieted about. It's like, maybe nobody would have paid attention to her if she weren't a billionaire. That was somehow a really big deal. There are three female role models in this film that have nothing to do with Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, Phyllis Gardner, very, very important doctor and entrepreneur, Silicon Valley, Erica Chung, who's a great whistleblower, and even Serena Stewart, you know, a, a phlebotomist who tried very hard to do the right thing. But we don't focus on those people. You know, those are real people trying to make a difference every day. But we focus on Elizabeth Holmes. Why? Because she's a billionaire. And that, I think, is something that, you know, is worth thinking about. Alex, you had previously made a film about Steve Jobs, uh, who comes up a lot uh, in, in this story as, Elizabeth, as maybe a role model for Elizabeth Holmes. Do you see any interesting connections between the Steve Jobs story and Elizabeth Holmes' story? Yeah, there's two important ones. One is, I think, I think the most important thing about Steve Jobs, who in his own way tried to pretend that he was an inventor when he really wasn't. Um, he was a storyteller, and he was a magnificent storyteller. You could see him at the beginning of his career, you know, trying to hawk the early Macs. He looks like a Tupperware salesman. It's almost embarrassing. By the end, he's masterful. I mean, he's, he's doing these iPod presentations up on stage, choreographed down to the, to the last jot and tittle, and, and, and making it seem like, you know, you're in his living room, hanging out with him. I mean, he was genius. Um, so he was a great storyteller, and he was a storyteller in the Edison mold, which is to say he put himself front and center at the heart of his story. He's the main character in the drama, just like Edison was, just like Elizabeth was. So in that sense, I, I think they share a, a certain commonality. Because Elizabeth's genius was that she was a storyteller. Mind you, she was telling an extremely fictional story, but she was a storyteller. The lesson, though, that Elizabeth didn't learn about Steve Jobs, which is a really important lesson, and something that Phyllis Gardner says at the end is really important. You must always admit it. You must always admit your mistakes. Steve Jobs learned a lot from his failure the first go-round and then his failure at Next in particular. So when Apple 2.0 comes around, he's surrounding himself with some very talented people the John Rubenstein in charge of hardware, um, Avi Tavanian, uh, who's briefly shown here in, in charge of software, Johnny Ive, design, and these people could say no to him, and he would listen to them. And so he learned from mistakes in a very powerful way. The head of Toyota used to say, mistakes are precious. Well, unfortunately, not for Elizabeth Holmes. 
So one of the people who work for Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Tony Nugent, uh, says that they were at some point on a pathway to maybe realizing a portion uh, of this dream. And I, and I wonder if in your reporting you have any sense if there could have been a different story here, if they had allowed the Edison box to be bigger or if they had taken a slower approach. Is there a version of this where you could have had a company that would have been a disruptor in healthcare? Or do the people you've talked to think that this was a total fantasy? It wasn't a total fantasy because some of the technology is out there to be realized in this area. And by the way, as we briefly pointed out in the film, you know, I think that this was a, a, an area that needed disrupting. You know, these two companies that control lab testing, Quest and LabCorp, have been sued <laughs> often by Medicare and Medicaid for overcharging. Their prices are terribly um, opaque and very high. Um, so it was ripe for disruption, and there was a the technology there. But two things, you know, one was she tried to do way too much in terms of trying to put all this stuff in one box. There were accomplishable goals that she could have realized. And also, had she listened to the people around her, maybe there would have been a path. But the big problem, and this often happens with people who are struggling to realize a dream, and then when they're not making it, instead of paying attention to the fact that they've got problems, they invest in the idea that the dream is real when it's not. And that was a moment when they were desperately needed capital because they were running out of money, and they had to make the deal with Walgreens. And when they made the deal with Walgreens, and, and it was a crazy deal that was kind of a bait and switch and all that, but when they made the deal with Walgreens, that meant that their shitty testing was being utilized on real human beings that were putting them at risk. And that was a line that was crossed that was just fatal. In this film, you're uh, interviewing a lot of reporters, uh, Ken Auletta from uh, The New Yorker, others that, uh, that we've mentioned. Uh, and, and that's been true of other documentaries uh, where you've been either working alongside someone writing a book or following the footsteps of, of someone who's written a book. And I wonder what your you know, working method is when you're drawing off the, uh, the reportage of, of someone else. You know, what is the... Uh, the, you know, the role a documentary maker has when they're working that closely with someone who's done a lot of spade work? The first thing is to give them a lot of credit because they're doing great work. And, and uh, you know, my dad was a journalist and I'm a huge a fan of what investigative journalists do and how hard it is to do the work. And I, and I think in a way, while we properly celebrate the work of John Carreyrou, who did an extraordinary job in terms of bringing this to light, the beating heart of the film is uh, Roger Parloff, who... The Fortune magazine. The Fortune journal. magazine guy, the guy who put uh, Elizabeth on their cover. You can feel how haunted he is even today. Angry, yes, and properly so, but also haunted because he takes the job of journalism so seriously. Um, and it's that kind of detective work, but also an important truth-telling that's so important to him that it, it, it's literally ripping apart that he got it wrong. And so, you know, that aspect of it was really important. But I, yes, you're right. A lot of films I've done, I work with journalists in part because I think they're, they're like detectives. And, and I'm a big fan of detective stories. Uh, but also, you know, I, I feel strongly when they have appeared in my films in terms of giving them a lot of credit. And in the case of Carrie Rue in particular, 
he deserves a lot of credit. Ken Oletta also delivers a lot of credit, too. He led us inside his fact-finding process, and we hear the tapes, and we hear Elizabeth lie to him in ways that are, are, are very important, because without that, it's just he said, she said. Well, you know, he gave us the shit. Aaron, I uh, presume you would have loved to have talked to Elizabeth Holmes uh, and and Sonny Balwani, uh, the, the president of the company. Can you talk about other people that you tried to interview that you couldn't get to? Yeah. I wish um, Jessie Dieter were here tonight. She's the other producer who's West Coast based and lives in Palo Alto. She, first of all, she was the only one of us to have met Elizabeth in person at the very beginning. She had a five-hour dinner with her um, uh, which on, on the basis that you're making a film about Theranos, or on a different basis? Uh, on the about this film, and I think it was, um, you know, it was a five-hour dinner where Elizabeth was really interviewing her, trying to get information about who we, we were speaking to, and trying to, um, you know, I think lead us along to say, you know, if we just waited, we would be able to film her at the ribbon cutting of the new Theranos, the Theranos 2.0 that she was very sure she was on the way to rebuilding at that point. Um, so yeah, Jesse has a lot of wild stories about talking to Elizabeth. We tried with Elizabeth many, many, many times. Every time the news got worse for her, starting with you know the SEC coming out, calling her a fraud, and then the multiple lawsuits that she was in. We tried every time and she declined every time. Um, there were a few instances of some of the younger female employees, too, in the company who still believed at that time that, um, you know, they didn't want to be a part of taking down a female entrepreneur and didn't want to be involved in the film. Um, and, uh, I mean, Walgreens. We tried to get Walgreens to come out um, and you know, we speak their part and explain to us what happened and tried to tell Walgreens, you know, we did this interview with Doug Macha, who describes exactly how your execs were were uh, deceived in the testing of the Edison. You know, isn't that interesting to you? And don't you want to come and talk about it and um, what you guys were thinking during this process and how you were wronged as well? And, uh, you know, they they couldn't decline. I mean, so many of these people had already settled lawsuits and you know there was a lot of legal ties I think that prevented us from speaking with people but yeah there was a ton of people we wish we could wish we could have talked to her family I should also say that I did sit down early on with David Boyce he's the guy I also tried very hard to interview for all sorts of reasons he declined he did sit down with me early on and, and when you were uh, interviewing him, had he already left the company, or was he still part of Theranos? He had left the company. And he said he left the company because he asked, finally, <laughs> for a test to be done on his blood. And Theranos kept delaying and kept delaying and kept delaying and finally said, okay, I'm leaving. That's what he said. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But um, I did try very hard to get him to speak on camera, and for whatever reason, he, he wouldn't. Um, I do think that... Um, what's interesting about this, and you know, Aaron mentions Walgreens. Part of what is what's interesting about this story to me is how very powerful, very um, well-heeled people and companies, whenever presented with the opportunity to really do due diligence, did just the opposite and just trusted, just you know 
let themselves be bowled over by Elizabeth. Walgreens is a classic example. The, the, the two key executives at Walgreens who were in touch with Elizabeth you know, had hired a consultant to kind of kick the tires. And he said, I want to take that machine apart and see how it works. And um, Elizabeth called the execs up and said, you cannot let him do that. And they backed off. And so I think in retrospect, they were terrible. One of the reasons they didn't talk to us is because they're so heartily embarrassed that they fucked up so badly. But they fucked up in the face of this kind of prison of belief, to use an expression from a, you know, another film I made, which is Elizabeth was able to convince people that it was a great mission that they all should all be going on and just let her take care of the details. I want to ask you about the role of NDA agreements uh, when you're investigating a, a story like this. I feel like in the wake of uh, Me Too scandals, we've heard a lot more about NDA agreements and, and how they have a chilling effect on journalism happening. And, you know, in your experience, when you're trying to talk to someone who's signed an NDA agreement, um, is what is your experience and and you know what is the experience when someone breaks that okay i had a lot of experience with that and um <laughs> particularly with the church of scientology the church of scientology got people to sign multiple nda agreements that were extremely ironclad uh and it was very hard to break through that i, I there was one person who was so terrified about coming forward in that film, if I had persuaded that person to come forward, uh, let's just say I, I think that the consequences for certain key members of the Church of Scientology would have been much greater. But this NDA thing really is a crisis. So I think for everybody here, if there's a small message of what to do after something like this, it would be call your congressperson or senator and say, we have to have a law in place that tolls the power of an NDA if somebody is uh, trying to tell the truth about malfeasance or corruption. Because NDAs are allegedly there to prevent people from leaking uh, proprietary details. But really, they're used, whether it's by Harvey Weinstein, or, or whether it's by um, uh, Scientology, or whether it's by you know David Boyce and Boyce Schiller on behalf of Elizabeth Holmes. They're there to prevent people from revealing corruption, malfeasance, and criminality. And it's terrifying. And, 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 and we're involved in some other films now, you know, having to do with the banking industry. And it goes across the banking industry. And anybody who has information about, you know, how corrupt that industry is, is not permitted to talk because they're, um, you know, tied up with these NDAs, which they may be able to get out of under certain circumstances, and, and you can't force somebody to, to be in a, 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 you can't force somebody uh, not to tell the truth about uh, a crime. But people are so terrified of coming forward not knowing whether or not they're gonna be protected. One note to filmmakers here in the context of this though, and this is something that we went through on, on this film. Um, at your peril, you know, as a journalist or as a, a filmmaker, you can't encourage somebody to break a tort. It's called tortious interference, and that includes an NDA. And so you have to be very cautious, or you have to be very forthright with people and say, look, 
it's important to tell the truth. I can't give you advice about whether or not um, you know, you're at risk with an NDA. That's a contract you sign. It's important to tell the truth for all sorts of reasons. Please, you know, and, and, and if you choose to, great. But, you know, it, it, it gets into tricky territory if you start to induce people to, to break contracts because of the way our laws work. Yeah, and, and obviously that's the benefit that reporters have over filmmakers where they can have an anonymous source, which uh, Tyler Schultz was for Carrie Rue in the beginning. And of course we want faces and people and voices to go on camera for us. It's, you know, so even some of the sources who had worked with Carrie Rue would still took extra convincing or, um, you know, more bad news. I think it helped us when it was clear that the company was broadly being called a fraud and they were running out of money and they wouldn't have any money to sue any more employees that they finally started coming around. But it's a really big challenge for filmmakers in particular. That's something, that, of course, Erica Chung says, which is terribly important, which is, of course, one option. She's the whistleblower. Yes, she's, one of the, she's the whistleblower. She did go to um, a federal agency and say, I've got information, you know, can you protect me as a whistleblower? That is protection. And so, you know, that is an option for people if they find themselves in a situation where they're in a company uh, <coughs> where obvious criminality is going on. What is your takeaways from this story? Is this a story of a singular example of uh, a gigantic case of fraud? Or are there, uh, you know, larger lessons to be learned about Silicon Valley or, or anything else? I think that Elizabeth, in her own way, is unique and, um, and, and, and special. But I don't think she's um, the classic bad apple. I think she's an exaggeration of trends we see elsewhere. And I think she's an exaggeration of a trend we see in Silicon Valley, this whole idea of fake it till you make it, over-promise, uh, and you, you, you'll figure it out downstream. Uh, and indeed, she's an exaggeration of that going back to Thomas Edison. That's part of capitalism, really, in a way, is to try to sell a dream and then see if you can catch up to it. Isn't that part of pitching a documentary film? It is indeed. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I've been in that situation, I must say, where I, I, I over-promise, at least at the beginning, I'm wondering, oh my god, we don't have any footage, nobody's agreeing to talk to us, we're in deep shit. And, and and we try very hard to catch up. So, and just as Darren Ariely says, I, I think you can't, you know, if, if as he equips, if nobody overpromised, that we wouldn't have any restaurants. So, you know, it's like, I get it. But but I do think that there is a an element of um, trying to protect the promo by falsifying stuff. That's where you get into trouble, where you believe the dream instead of the reality, and you stop telling the truth and, and try to, try to, 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 to hide it. Uh, that's where fraud comes from. But broadly speaking, again, I think the depth of this story that's really interesting to me, and, and where Elizabeth, I think, is very much, um, the Elizabeth story is about psychology, and, and really it's a psychology that it's about all of us in, in some way, which is to say, Nobody who does bad, everything, or few people who do bad think I'm doing bad. They usually rationalize it and think I'm doing something good. It's the end justifies the means. I've got this great thing I'm trying to do. If I have to cut a few corners or I'm doing some bad stuff, I'm still a, a, basically a good person. And we all behave like that from time to time. 
But that should be a cautionary tale for all of us when we see people who wildly overpromise or seem to be messianic and seem to be so great. You know, it doesn't mean that um, they're always telling the truth. And we're susceptible to those blandishments because emotionally, as Dan Ariely says, we respond to stories because they have a certain emotional valence and power which overrides our, um, uh, our, our, our more rational uh, ability to analyze the situation. You know, she couldn't have succeeded without being enabled by venture capitalists and the Silicon Valley media, and even her ability to convince, you know, uh, her, her board of directors, um, and even people like Tyler Schultz that knew things weren't working, that, you know, to, to convince them to keep going. And that is, I think, something that we have to take a step back and look at what does that say about us and how we respond to our own emotions and the stories um, that somebody can be compelling in telling us. Yeah, I just want to pile on on that j just very quickly because I think Aaron touched on something that's really important. One of the things that Elizabeth did that was so effective in terms of making the fraud work was she surrounded herself with respectability. Henry Kissinger, Jim Mattis, George Schultz, David Boyce, you know, article in Fortune magazine, article in the New Yorker, um, you know, investors, Larry Ellison, Rupert Murdoch, um, you know, Joe Biden comes out, she's there with, um, you know, Obama. That should teach us something about, you know, when you see Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz standing up and saying there's something wrong here, but everybody around them is saying, impossible. Henry Kissinger is on the board. It teaches us a lot about respectability and the way that um, we will sometimes imagine that there couldn't possibly be anything wrong because it's respectable. Well, what was the crisis that just broke yesterday about college admissions and how respectable all our colleges are in terms of being equally fair to everybody? Not so much. I assume that's an upcoming Jigsaw uh, <laughs> Productions uh, it's film. It's been discussed. <laughs>to thank Alex Gibney and producer Aaron Atkin for speaking with me. Their film, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, is now playing on HBO. If you're in New York City, please join us on Tuesday nights for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Our spring season starts on April 9th and runs through the end of May can get more information on our website. The Pure Nonfiction theme music is composed by Andre Williams, who passed away this week at the age of 82. When I was starting the podcast, I came across his tracks and felt they were perfect. The fact that Andre has roots in my hometown, Detroit, made it even better. He's the subject of a 2008 documentary called Agile, Mobile, Hostile, A Year with Andre Williams, directed by Trisha Todd. We send our condolences to Andre's family and friends. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. 
I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.